In our conversation with historian Janice Tracy last week, we entertained the possibility that what people call the Dixie Mafia was open to interpretation. It was a concept that, depending on where you looked, was up for grabs. Maybe it held here, maybe it didn't there. It all depended on your perspective. Not now, not here, not today. Come to Texas in the 1960s and you can check that uncertainty at the door. Jesse Sublett is the author of a book whose title hits you like a right cross to the jaw. 1960s Austin Gangsters, Organized Crime That Rocked the Capitol. And in Sublett's book, there are plenty of right crosses, and left crosses, and full-body beatings, and shootings, and bank heists, and explosions, and executions, and more. A raft of crimes over the course of that decade that would give the Chicago mob a run for its money and put Austin on the map as one of the known hotspots of Dixie Mafia activity. Most of this activity can be traced back to one outfit, the Overton Gang, a name that still causes Austinites to whisper, and as Jesse knows all too well, to look over their shoulder just in case. It's our pleasure to welcome him onto Crime Capsule for the first in a two-part series on his book. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, man. It's good to be here. Your book is, it is very much a story of place as much as it is people. Austin, Texas, for better or worse, nowadays is a national city. The branding, the tech sector, the breakfast tacos, everybody knows Austin. But take us back to Austin in the 1960s, decades before South By. The the thing about Austin in the 60s is that it it was still kind of a small town. It was state capital and home of the university, and that gave it a, a, a a sense of stability without big uh, industry or anything. The university being uh, situated here gave it a, uh, there were a lot of intellectuals and uh, kind of a, a quirky uh, bohemian uh, academics. There was a large population of uh, spelunkers, for example, and those were the guys who would go across the border and uh, bring back bushels of peyote. Uh, even in the 50s, um, there were lots of beatniks uh, smoking pot and stuff. And so there's this community, bohemian community here. And it's, it speaks to the sort of intellectual side of Austin, but there's also always a split personality here from the very beginning because it was founded by uh, the vice president of the Republic of Texas, who was a, a bad poet who ended up here on a buffalo hunt, and supposedly after he shot a buffalo, but I think he was probably taking a leak on a hill and admired the surrounding environment and said this should be the future seat of empire. And uh, so the following year, 1839, it became the capital of the republic. But it was really a bad place. There was no reason to start something here. It was deep in Indian country. Uh, it was just a whimsy this guy had. And so uh, even, you know, when you lived here, you had to live with the the likelihood that uh, in the middle of the night, your uh, livestock and your children would be uh, 
swept away by Comanche Raiders. It's always had that wild side to it, and then on the other side, sort of dreamy, creative side. Uh, in the 60s, Austin was uh, not a very important place besides being the state capital, but it had this uh, uh, wealth of federal money in addition to state money, thanks to uh, Lyndon Johnson being part of the right hand of the New Deal. And so the, the seeds of the high-tech culture were planted, and it was uh, the river had been developed, flood control, the, the, the river being another symbolic side of the wild side of uh, Austin nature. And once that was corralled, people started settling in the hills and became a center for recreation on the lakes and everything. So you had the sort of uh, intellectual side here in Austin, but also the, the, the uh, cedar choppers who lived right on the edge of town in the hills. Some of these guys were associated with what we call the Overton Gang. Let me ask you, with this sort of schizophrenic split personality that you're describing to Austin, wild, bohemian, carefree, there are also very real dividing lines of race and class in your history, lines that are actually very pertinent to the story that you tell. Can you give us can you give us a sense of the human geography of Austin at this time and why that matters for your story? The other thing about Austin is that the the downtown part of it, the you know, like what white people considered important, the uh, capital and the banks and everything, the very concentrated area set off by natural boundaries, the river and uh, two creeks formed this uh, you know, gridiron that they laid the city out on originally. but And just south of the river, the south side of the river used to flood all the time. So development down there was sparse. And that's so naturally, that's where you ended up having uh, speakeasies and uh, motels and bars and stuff that if they flooded out, well, so what? You know, they could rebuild or whatever. And then starting really just after World War II, they uh, started solidifying the east-west divide with uh, Interstate 35. And it just, you know, like a concrete curtain cut off the east side of town, which happened to be uh, neighborhoods that had been proscribed for uh, Hispanics and uh, African Americans. Because uh, when they would uh, settle on the west side of town, they'd find that they couldn't get utilities hooked up to their houses and stuff like that. You know, it was in the city charter in the 20s that uh, the east side is where the minorities lived. And so, for better and worse, the uh, uh, blacks and Hispanics developed their own uh, communities over there. Some of that was a a very rich uh, cultural life, but uh, it was also a a racist uh, system. So... This is where the Overton family lived, and so many of them were physically big, strong guys. In sports, they were, they were the linemen. They were never the running backs, you know. They were the guys who fought in golden gloves, and uh, they were also the guys who uh, oftentimes got uh, in trouble and sent off to prison. So it was uh, not, common, not uncommon for uh, or your next-door neighbor to have uh, done a term in Huntsville and end up driving a gravel truck or something like that. So uh, there was some resentment there. Let's jump right in with the Overtons. They are the main subject of your book and of the major players in 
the gang, you focus on Tim, of course, Tim Overton. You have Jerry Ray James or Fat Jerry. You have Lucky Brown, Freddie Hedges, Hank Bowen. Uh, you have a couple other Overtons, such as Tim's father, Snooks, and his brother, Charles. But the central figure is Tim. Where did he come from, and how did he end up running a criminal outfit? Tim was born in 1940. Not quite a baby boomer, a pre-baby boomer, I guess. And um, so he was a, always a prominent athlete, starting in uh, Little League, Pony League, basketball, baseball, uh, you can look up the newspaper clippings, and uh, his name is always mentioned, and uh, his friends all talked about what a great athlete he was. He was also smart, and so that set him apart from a lot of the guys who were involved in this kind of life. He had a doting mother. She had married his father when, I think they got together when she was 13, possibly 14. That was, wasn't that unusual back then. She and her and his father were both part of the influx of, uh, you know, kind of Grapes of Wrath movement from West Texas where the farms all got peeled off during the dust storms. So there was that element in the uh, community on the, on the east side. There were five brothers. Tim was the second oldest. He was part of the 1958 graduating class that almost won the championship for uh, Austin High. They were predicted to have, to win it. There was a lot of energy behind them, and it was a huge, they, they were uh, flown to their games during the finals in the Braniff Airline, to put a little more uh, imagery on the period. They, they lost during the uh, quarterfinals, semifinals, something like that, and it was huge, huge disappointment. They said that the, all the guys cried on the way back. But still, they uh, several of them got uh, scholarships to play for UT. And uh, University of Texas, that was the golden ring. Most of those guys wouldn't even consider going to another college. In fact, it was, like I say, Austin being uh, like a small town. Even on the east side, you could see the Capitol Dome and the UT Tower. It was like a beacon. You know, that's where I'm going. That's the thing. You know, football is, you know, is is God here, right? The famed coach, Daryl Royal, who uh, was not all that famous yet, except as a, a incredible college athlete from Oklahoma, had taken over the team and the organization and was rebuilding them from the ground up, literally the ground up, replacing the turf on the uh, football field, you know, there was a huge amount of energy going on into that, you know, and uh, so he played, his freshman year, he played on the freshman team, which you had to do, but the second year, he w he was a part of the starting roster, he actually played in the Cotton Bowl, which is a big, big deal, he got the, uh, the watch, that uh, gold Hamilton watch with his name engraved on the back, but... He was out of school. He, he left school. I just learned this, actually. After the football season, it didn't register for the spring semester and instead worked on the Western Pipeline, which was something guys did back then. But, it, but he was passing when he left school. So to me, that suggests they had already gotten in trouble. Uh, and it was hushed up. Uh, typically, if, when football players got in trouble in Austin, uh, you know, but it was fixed. 
Right. That was part of the unrecorded story that uh, that I was told by many people. I'm, I take it as fact now. And so later that year, he kept getting in trouble. And by uh, the worst things that he got in trouble for were forgery. Um, he was uh, involved in a, a scam where uh, they would uh, burglarize businesses and uh, take their uh, check writing machines, uh, which was, you know, uh, in the you know in those days a big deal. Uh, they didn't have computers and stuff. You know, they they wrote payroll checks. Uh, on a machine and send out guys with checks, not just in town. I also just learned this. It was a statewide deal. They stole check running machines in Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, and Houston and sent guys out with checks in, in all these towns. When they were busted, one of the guys was in Houston or San Antonio with 40 checks. So you multiply that by three or four guys going out, you know, you might end up with a a considerable amount of money. And so uh, the first time he pled guilty and was given a suspended sentence. And uh, then a couple of months later, he was busted for the very same thing. So a forgery doesn't sound like that big of a deal now, you know, but, but it was a huge deal then. And it was a, a major crime problem. And, and forgers and small-time safe crackers were the hackers of uh, the 1950s and 60s. And so it was sent to Huntsville. He served uh, less than a year and uh, got out. And in 1961, he was in Austin. One thing that he and his brothers were involved in were uh, gambling. Uh, they would uh, they were card fixers. When uh, the professional gamblers that I've spoken to said that when the, these guys sat down in a game, you just the best thing was to fold because you you weren't going to win. They would take all your money. They had all kinds of magic that they, they would start doing, and they'd get all your money. Let, let me ask you, Jesse, this is, this is such an interesting question about Tim. You know, he had a working-class upbringing. His family was always on the move. They had address after address. They were just relocating around town all the time. You know, he didn't have a great dad, pretty abusive. His mother, she kind of held things together as best she could, but she died when he was pretty young. He had an older brother who was pretty much a career felon uh, from the jump. Mm -hmm. You know, Tim had some pretty terrible odds as far as, you know, his lot in life when he was a, a young man. But he also had this potentially very bright future ahead of him as a football star at UT of all places, right? So how do you explain those choices he made to go off the rails, to go to the dark side? There's some traumatic things were going on in that family, and I've never quite zeroed in on, on what it might have been. But, you know, you mentioned some of the factors that seem obvious, and the fact that his mother had died of a brain tumor his senior year, and it's, it's, uh, it's like if you were writing a movie to just push all these buttons... Yeah, all these all these uh, developments would be written up the way that they were. She died the weekend that he went back to school his senior year to miss his senior his first regular football game. He had just turned seventeen. All this weird stuff, and then a couple of months later, his father marries this wild woman named Florine. And apparently they may have been 
having an affair, you know, during the marriage. It seems pretty likely. And she was just a wild, weird woman. She had, uh, her previous husband was a uh, Snooks, a uh, head mechanic, Melvin, Melvin Birch. And she had married and divorced him several times. She had six children of her own. And after she married Snook, she divorced him at least twice and remarried him. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, drugs going on. Uh, she really liked barbiturates. Whether she turned Snook on to them, I don't know, but there were a lot of barbiturates flowing in and out of the house. I think uh, several people said that his mother dying changed him a lot. That was it. Maybe that was. I don't know. I think he was like a lot of uh, kids doing a lot of delinquent stuff, breaking into places and uh, doing pranks and stuff. You know, like a lot of a lot of these guys just never grew up. You know, high school was a lot of fun. They they enjoyed the chaos and they were be king of the hill for beating up all comers. Fist fights were a big deal. After they graduated, it was like, okay, what now? And they just kept doing the same thing. Now, now Tim had that potential to uh, grow up and go, okay, I'm done with that. Some people who were close to him blamed the coach for not getting him out of trouble those last couple of times. It seems kind of ridiculous when, uh, on the face of it, but that's what they say. And so I think he had this twisted idea that Coach Royal had betrayed him and not stood up for him like he promised. And so revenge was a big factor in uh, his motivations from then on. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So he, he turns his back on UT and links up first his brother from whom he learns quite a lot about the trade, so to speak, and we'll come to that in a second. But he begins to, to find some friends, some layabouts, some folks he can kind of team up with. And he, I'm trying not to exaggerate here, Jesse, he's kind of in and out of jail pretty consistently over the first part of the 1960s with these guys, but they always kind of get bailed out, right? And then they come back and they've got this they've got this swagger to them. They've got this kind of style to them. And as the Overton gang really is forming in those early years, 1960, 1961, 1962, 
they are really into their style. I mean, image is everything. They've got the expensive clothes. They've got the Cadillacs. They've got the alligator shoes. Why was this so central to their identity? Part of it was the 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 immediate era that they grew up in. You know, they these were guys who grew up when the uh, Senate Crime Commission hearings were on town, so they were seeing all these uh, uh, mafia characters on television, and and those guys were uh, a kind of superstar of the era. So I think they they emulated that, and that was part of the zeitgeist because when the newspapers covered. The Overtons and their their friends, they would adopt some of the same vernacular that was being used to describe these uh, big mafia characters on on the East Coast in Chicago. The boxer style was sharp clothes, Cadillac, and um, oftentimes a a girlfriend who was also a hooker. So uh, it was just part of the lifestyle. You know, the chunky gold jewelry and watches and stuff, that was also mail money, you know. You get in trouble, you got your uh, bling right there to, uh, to help buy your way out of it. Same with the cars. So that was all part of the style. And a, a rock and roll scene was happening. They would hang out at the, uh, at the blues club. They, they dug that scene. But of course... They also have to pay for all of this, right? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the bread and butter of the Overton gang. Tell us, Jesse, how to crack a safe open like an egg. First, you get into, getting into the banks in those days was pretty easy. You know, they could jimmy the back door lock or drill it out. And so you get inside and start attacking the vault, and the vault being the, the uh, armored wall. They would uh, peel that, usually peel that, by uh, going around the edges and just knocking out the rivets. And just once you uh, knock out a few rivets, you start prying the frame loose, pull your way in, you can maybe jimmy the door, or they would attack the lock, probably attack the lock on the vault first by knocking it off, with knocking the head off with a chisel, and then they'd start uh, working on the innards with uh, a drill. They used short-handled sledges. They had all sorts of pry bars and stuff. So once they get inside, they would start working on the safe and use the same technology on the on this safe that they would uh, use on the lock. They might have found a lock combination. These guys also stole locksmith vans, and so. They- they would uh, have, they might have tryout codes, uh, tryout, you know, combinations. And so they'd try those first. If, if those didn't work, they'd, they'd start working on the, on the, on the knob. They'd knock the knob off. And uh, with the knob off, they start to attack the, uh, uh, knock a chisel in between the tumblers to get them out of the way. Or more likely, they might try uh, grinding their way in. So safes uh, at that time, especially the square safes, they could uh, attack the corners and start grinding away and and uncover the layers of laminate uh, because they weren't solid metal. They were laminated. So they would peel away one layer, then peel away another until they could uh, get a hole in there and reach in and grab the money out. Or they might use a, a torch to burn their way in. That could work, but you, on the 
a small money safe, you uh, ran the risk of uh, burning up the money inside. So sometimes they would make a hole and use a water hose to run in there and uh, cool the money down while they uh, uh, burned a hole in the side of the safe. They really know what they're doing. Their timing is good. The entry and the exit is based on fairly extensive case in the joint planning, execution. I mean, they really became professionals and even ran a what they called kind of a crime school for new guys who wanted to join up and learn the techniques. The, the, the thing is, once they got into uh, uh, hitting banks, they got more disciplined. They realized that uh, we need to cool it in Austin uh, because, you know, they would go out and uh, in the beginning, they would go out and get in fights all the time. They would uh, do stuff and end up uh, in jail. And so they got disciplined enough to, to hit the road and uh, do their crimes. They would drive up the interstates and the interstates, the highway system was a, a big part of the story because uh, it was fairly new and suddenly you could drive you know, hundreds of miles away to other cities and other states with ease, right? And so they would, uh, they were cool enough to organize uh, these um, jobs and case them years ahead of time. So they had places they would go that they had cased uh, many times before and uh, pull the job and go on to another town or or they'd be back in town, uh, you know, the next morning. That's another interesting part of their dynamic because on the one hand they were crazy and out of control and then on the other hand they were very organized and careful uh, the uh, one of the uh, detectives that I interviewed the most uh, said that uh, you know they had an uncanny sense of when something was up they would just uh, drive up to the gig and just things didn't feel right and they would blow it off and they had so many jobs planned that that, that they could do that yeah, that was what they did. This is going on month after month in this time period, early 60s. I mean, they're just, they're stringing these along almost week after week. They're busting these safes. Did the local businesses, did the banks in that sort of satellite perimeter around Austin, did these business owners not wise up? Was there nothing they could do to protect themselves once it became known that, hey, fairly skilled safe-cracking gang was on the loose? These pl- places uh, would buy what, what were called cannonball safes. And uh, Mossler made these. I don't know if other companies made them, but they were the best known by far. And they were just a, a large, round safe uh, with a, a, a special metal alloy. And so there's no flat surfaces for you to focus your drill on and they were extremely hard and they they really messed up the gang they they had uh, actually very little luck getting into those but they were only so big so uh, the banks would uh, store uh, bags of coins uh, cash outside the uh, this money safe so once once they got into the vault and they they had no trouble getting into vaults uh, you know, they'd run off with that. Now, your big time, uh, big time, uh, big city bank burglars, uh, they don't mess with coins, but these guys did. They were like sharks. They, they loved coins. The quantity 
other activity overcame the lack of quality sometimes. And, and uh, also, they would uh, uh, break into the safe deposit boxes. And, and some of these small-town banks, safe deposit box was basically a fishing tackle box with a little lock on it or, uh, or something like that. And so they would rifle through those, and they would get uh, all kinds of stuff, jewelry, coin collection, things. That they would score tens of thousands of dollars uh, of loot uh, sometimes that way. And probably uh, some uh, blackmail material, too. Always handy. For every mouse in this game, there's a cat. And at the Austin Police Department, you had two cats with the sharpest claws in the business. Harvey Gann... Ernie Scholl, combat vets. Gan had been a POW in the war. They're tough as nails. How did they end up as narcs? You know, it's funny. Uh, I never really asked myself that about Harvey. Now, H- Harvey uh, was a just a really hard-nosed Joe Friday kind of cop. And uh, a, a very little sense of irony, too. He viewed... Uh, the drug culture and the thug culture as, you know, just enemies of the American way of life. So he took his job very seriously. But on the other hand, he was the the least honest of the two guys and forthcoming. I interviewed him many times. He was always holding something back. He would say, i got to protect my sources. You know, like this is 50 years later, and he said, I'm going to protect my, you know. And uh, so he was just so guarded. Now, the other character, Ernie Shaw, was a son of a sheriff. He, he liked to say that he grew up in, a, in jail because his uh, father was a sheriff in uh, Comal County, and uh, they, they lived in an apartment at the jail. And uh, so he really, really admired his father. And he would tell stories about how his father did things that weren't uh, strictly according to the books uh, to solve a problem, as he put it. He said, we're problem solvers. And he really admired that. Now, so he, and probably to a lesser extent, uh, Harvey and all cops, but especially Ernie, he developed relationships with characters, and I guess partly because he worked undercover. Harvey, I mean, Ernie was actually uh, in the uh, Department of Public Safety Narcotics Division, the state cop, and they had uh, different sets of resources and lab and a big headquarters here uh, to work with. And so he was un- he worked undercover a whole lot. He would talk, uh, he he, uh, stayed in touch with a lot of the old characters um, over the years. And I I think he had affinity with the the criminal mind. I got to say, Ernie really impressed me in your book, Jesse, because his talents at undercover work are some of the best that I've ever read about. At one point, he was the motel clerk checking in the entire Overton gang for a crime conference that they were having out of town, sort of a crime business meeting, and he's the guy at the desk giving them the yeah. keys. Yeah, he, he, he got there ahead of them. That was a crazy deal. Yeah, and it was just one of I countless times that these guys would go out of town and hook up with the, the local connections and uh, case a job, go, go uh, do some... Uh, uh, poker games, and I don't know what all. 
you know, despite the luck he had of getting there ahead of time, they, they seeded the area with uh, other uh, surveillance operations and they had uh, various contacts on stakeout. And what happened, this was in Colorado, I forgot the town. Tim's girlfriend had a, a, a miscarriage or, or something and uh, needed uh, hospital care. And so they s- split town all of a sudden and uh, took... Tim took her to the hospital, and the the other guys uh, went separate ways, and so it was was all a big bust. The women in this story play a pretty pivotal role. Married or not, each of the guys had numerous female associates over the years. You had Tim's longtime girlfriend, Judy Cathay, the well-known Madam of Austin, Hattie Valdez, and a good number of these women were required to work as prostitutes as kind of a side gig or kind of the the financing mechanism for the burglaries, the robberies, the bail money, the lawyer money, and so forth. It's it's kind of like a merry-go-round, isn't it? The guys get busted for ja- for jacking some merch. The women turn tricks to pay their their bond or their legal fees, and to back around we go the next time. Um, I mean, Tim even pimped out his wife, Sue, for months. Uh, What I wanted to ask you, Jesse, this is a painful question, but I have to ask it. Did these women have any agency in this scenario? Any choice? Could they have gotten out if they wanted? Yeah, I don't think they could have gotten out. I think that it was just, uh, it it was the way it was. It was a a, a tragic and, and ugly uh, part of uh, the life back then, but it seems that most of these girls had gotten pregnant when they were teenagers, and uh, things had not worked out for one reason or the other, and they ended up in this life. The wife of one of the main guys in, uh, in uh, Tim's outlaw career, Chester, shoots uh, she, uh, her husband was one of these uh, cedar choppers, wild cedar choppers I mentioned, who had uh, teamed up with another guy and uh, brutally raped a young teenager, locked up her boyfriend in the trunk of the car. It was a really high-profile case. They, they became fugitives, and they, they, for a week or two, the sheriffs were out combing the woods looking for these guys, so... Uh, it was a nasty, nasty crime. And so she had a baby and another child. And uh, so when she hooked up a, a short time later with Chester, one of the longtime uh, members of the uh, Overton gang, and uh, became his husband and uh, better half in, in that life, it was in a way, a step up, or it was her only choice. Yeah, and and who else is going to hook up w- with one of these guys? You know, not the, the not the prom queen. Uh, and so uh, there, there's a kind of a joke uh, that Ernie told me. He said that uh, God invented uh, pimps so that prostitute would wake up and see someone who's even lower than she is on the totem pole. Yeah. So it, it was a, it was a, you know, one of those symbiotic natural forces back then. That's the way society was, was working. Let me ask you about another symbiotic relationship there, because I was really 
struck in your account of the very unusual kinds of relationships that Tim and his crew formed, often, of course, relationships of utility, but sometimes of affinity as well. And I really want to ask you about the defense attorneys that ended up representing Tim and the gang over the years. He went through a string of them. I'm looking at uh, Webby Flanagan, Jerry Lamont, Vern Knickerbocker. I mean, what were these relationships like? How did Tim find these people? Well, uh, it is possible that they found him. Now, Jerry Lamond was an interesting character. He had an uh, office in East Austin, and so he had a lot of African-American clients. He also was said to have installed uh, cooling fans in uh, some of the uh, neighborhood churches and stuff, things like that for outreach for uh, proved that he was a good guy. And uh, Jerry had a weakness. He loved making deals with uh, jewelry and uh, uh, looted stolen coin collections. That was part of the culture here. Flanagan was just an amazing character. Uh, he's a smuggler. He's a smuggler. He's also a bush pilot. I mean, he's, he's one of the getaway guys. Yeah. He served as the bush pilot for the Marines during the duration of the war got out and uh, went through law school and was on law review, uh, was a teacher's favorite, and uh, just out-of-the-box brilliant thinker. They say that he looked like the actor Danny Kaye. He was a, not a big guy. He was a cut-up. Uh, he put, put on the country lawyer thing to the max, and uh, he just had a lot of... Uh, uh, criminal clientele. So, like, I, you know, I, I, I had a friend that, a uh, very good friend that was a country lawyer, and and he he did a lot of barter. You know, he'd, he'd uh, get work done on his house, or he'd uh, take a gun or a, a wedding ring in, in barter sometimes for his clients. And uh, he wasn't one of these guys. He was just, he was an honest lawyer. He wasn't like Flanagan. And so, like, but, like, you can see, like, just, it's a matter of degree, right? You take a coin collection or a pile of gold and barter, you know, it's stolen. And so you're part of the, the ecosystem. Uh, so these guys are, well, they want to keep their clients free so they can keep getting this stuff and keep getting the money. So uh, they end up being puppet masters, as do the uh, bail bondsmen. Bail bondsmen are also part of the ecosystem. And uh, they also employ guys who are out on bail and felons and stuff, ex-cons, to uh, run errands for them. So maybe something beyond uh, uh, fixing up their house, tracking down other uh, bail jumpers. I want to bring some threads together. You write at one point in the book that busting safes and robbing banks and other local businesses, not just banks, they, they diversified. <laughs> is now quite literally Overton's job, like a, like a tradesman, right? But unlike plumbing or electrical, you can't keep doing what he's doing without it catching up to you. You have to keep doing it to stay afloat. More and more threads are beginning to unravel by the mid-1960s. Uh, threads of evidence, threads of bodies, threads of relationships that are beginning to fray. There's this job that they pull against a guy named Hiram Reed. It's about a 60K haul. 
And that doesn't go quite the way that they had thought it would. And then shortly after that, uh, in January 1966, Tim is actually shot uh, by kind of this strange guy in his in his doorway. Can, can you describe kind of what's happening right around that time and what what th- that year 1965 kind of was signaling or was was beginning to offer the Overton gang because there's a little bit of a shift here 65 was just nuts and I, I think drugs may have had something to do with it Tim was taking speed and barbiturates at, at this time so some of the crazy stuff that happened I think may have just been you know a bad drug day one problem was that there was starting to be pressure from local law enforcement, Harvey and Ernie included, on the community to, to do something. And why, why would they ask for help from the community? Because rich guys like Hiram Reed, who was a blue blood guy, and uh, they were big time gamblers. And so these guys were a big part of the gambling community. And uh, t- the Overton gang both benefited these guys in various ways, by, uh, and the, but they also preyed upon them. And so they had this uh, parasitic or symbiotic relationship. And so uh, the, the, the police knew that uh, these guys, like Hiram Reed, needed to step up and uh, do something. And so members of the uh, Grand Jury Committee, which was basically a, a vigilante Lions Club type deal, they got together and said, okay, you know, Got to do something, uh, and uh, so Hiram Reed was uh, part of that, and some other guys, and various guys on that committee ended up getting burglarized, closet full of furs taken out, and uh, wall safes uh, gutted, and uh, so that turned uh, <laughs> turned some of those guys off big time, and so there was that pressure going on. Uh, there was drugs, uh, especially Tim's younger brother, Daryl, was a loose cannon. He was constantly uh, 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 drilling into or burning uh, drugstore safes because drugstore safes were usually uh, easier to crack and had both dope and money inside. So Daryl would get arrested doing a, a drugstore job one night and then two or three nights later or the next week after he gets ba- uh, bailed out, he'd be back doing it again. So he had a bad uh, Jones going there. There was that. They would owe huge amounts of bail here and there. So they were getting pressure, you know, everywhere they went. They were getting tailed when they would leave town. So they would end up uh, sitting around in town, sending the girls out uh, to uh, work overtime, not just locally, but uh, in various towns on what they called the circuit. A lot of them, these were farm towns where, like, they had a grain mill. And so the farmers would come to town and uh, to bring their grain or their whatever crops they were bringing into town. And uh, they would uh, want to get themselves serviced while they're in town also. So uh, anyway, so and so uh, Ernie would send the, uh, uh, go up with the uh, highway patrol and uh, round the girls up and uh, put them in jail. They were getting pressured that way also. It's interesting because at this point, Overton's accomplices, they really start screwing up even more grandly. His brother murders a pimp execution style. 
the switching over the cars and the license plates and keeping their kind of trail clean is getting more and more complicated. Then in 1966, one of their heists goes terribly wrong. Yeah. It was like a clock spring breaking. Yeah, it was their Waterloo. Thanks for listening. Our guest today has been Jesse Sublet, author of 1960s Austin Gangsters, Organized Crime That Rocked the Capitol, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Tune in next week for the second part of our interview and for the conclusion of the Overton Gang saga. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer Ian Douglas, production director Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. We're just getting started here at Crime Capsule, and we are excited to bring you the best of true crime authorship in the weeks to come. To find out more, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.